Hello and welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking, film theory. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always, we'll end each episode with our recommendations for that week. Films inspired by the film of the week. But before we kick off, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. Rob? Nothing. <laughs> can, can it, you, it's genuine. Can you genuinely not been something? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, yeah. Between between kind of there hasn't been a massive gap between our last record and this record. Um, in all honesty, and I just try to think there's, there's what I've a, seen. It's been a week, man. What have you been I, doing? I know. I don't know what I'm thinking. Like, I'm literally thinking. What have I watched in the last <laughs> week? Um, oh, I, I mean, mostly been watching a lot of TV. Sarah and I, my wife, have this uh, what we call cultural exchange. Where we kind of take it in turns to kind of, I really like this. You either don't like it or haven't seen it, and I'm going to give it to you in return. They sent to me. So currently, we're watching our way through the West Wing, right? And Heart of Dixie. West Wing's my choice that Sarah's watching for me, and Heart of Dixie's her choice. I'm watching for her, right? So we've kind of made our way through through those two. I reckon um, so it's, it's, she's got the better end of that deal. You say that. I, 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 in all honesty, I went into this being like Heart of Dixie. It's all a bit twee and you know, but genuinely, I'm very much enjoying it. It's far funnier than I thought it was going to be, um, and made with far more heart than I thought it was going to be. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very different show to West Wing. Yes, certainly. Um, yeah, I, I feel I should have watched something more recently, but I just genuinely can't think what I have. Most of last weekend was spent doing housework and things um, in a very dull way. Oh, it's adulthood for you. Yeah, well, because my wife's pregnant right now, we can't like going out to the movies doesn't really happen right now. Mm. So it's going kind to of, what can we watch at home? I'm sure there's been movies, but given that absolutely nothing leaps out in my head, it can't have been anything amazing. Oh, okay. Sam. Well, we've been taking part in a bit of a cultural exchange this end as well. Um, Mild half is a huge fan of a certain TV series. Um, And as a result, she wanted to go and see the new Absolutely Fabulous film. And I said I'd go with her, partly partly because it's... I mean, Jennifer Saunders is brilliant, so it's it's not going to be terrible. Um, and partly because I'd also said I'll go and see that with you if you come and see now see me too with me so um, it's kind of a, a future cultural exchange that will happen in, in later weeks we, so we went to see um, the new absolutely fabulous film and we both came out with the same response afterwards which is that was not nearly as bad as I thought it might have been. It was completely unobjectionable. Um, There have been reviews of it saying that um, while the writing for TV was brilliant, it it is not made for a longer form, and Jennifer Saunders has just bloated this with cameos. And that is true to a certain extent. Um... But it was it was a lot of fun. The bits featuring Jennifer Saunders and John Lumley, as you'd expect, were good. Um, there was a time when it was just a nice little caper comedy set in the south of France. 
um, which I enjoyed. Yeah, it, it was it wasn't terrible. Um, and it certainly could have been a lot worse, given that it was a film of a TV series and the spectre of Sex and the City hangs in the background. Um, so yes, that that was my uh, my watching this week. I, I feel this section has, has slowly morphed into Rob and Sam talk about films that they say aren't terrible. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. I, I, apart from me talking about Spotlight last week, I feel we always just kind of go, well, it was all right. Yeah. I feel we never actually go, no, what, this was brilliant or this was terrible. And we just kind of, we end up going, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. In the great film critic tradition of, of just thinking everything's all right, but a bit bland. It is a bit bland. Um, uh, so, Rob, save us with an introduction to this week's film. So, this week's film is the third in the Indiana Jones trilogy. It is the 1989 film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Look, the shield is the second mark. We found it. Indiana Jones is on the quest of a lifetime. <laughs> But for some adventures, one Jones is not enough. Dad? Junior? Don't call me that, please. Indiana Jones Lock Crusade is, I suppose, a follow-up to the last one, but in the sense of the first one, first one second one, there isn't really a link. You aren't, it isn't a direct sequel. It's just like another adventure of Indiana Jones. This time, his hunt for the Holy Grail. We have some returning characters in the uh, sort of forms of Marcus Brody and Salah, brand new characters in the forms of Elsa and Walt Donovan. But most importantly, you've got Professor Henry Jones, played by Sean Connery, Indiana Jones's dad. And it's notably lighter in tone compared to Temple of Doom. And Spielberg has us on record to say that he felt he went too dark with Temple of Doom and this was trying to redress the balance. That's essentially it. it is the same, not the same story, but the same kind of rip roaring adventure you, that we come to know and expect from Indy at this point. Sam, having heard you tear apart and destroy childhood dreams last week with your <laughs> takedown of Temple of Doom, I fear asking you this, but your thoughts? Well, fear no longer because I bloody love this film. It's I. I will not hear a bad word said against this film. It is. It's certainly in my top ten films of all time. It's just th- what's not to like about it. It it's something that you mentioned about the first one, the first week, how it doesn't really stop. There's a bit of a lull, but then there's set piece after set piece, and it just sweeps you away. And the same thing happens here. It starts with young Indiana Jones fleeing the robbers and. Uh, chase, being chased through a circus train and falling into a pit of snakes and it just just continues from there it's just incredible how how much of a contrast this is to the second film um, mm-hmm. and I'm, although I, I was fairly critical of it last time I'm not hugely down I'm not certainly not as down on the second film as I may have sounded last week um, but I think it, it might be interesting to think about something that you mentioned last week 
There was a certain anti-museum sentiment in the Temple of Doom when Indiana mm-hmm. says, um, "It's it's better that the stone stays here." When um, he gets gets asked at the end, "Well, what about the museum? Should you take it back?" And there's none of that here. There's all the way through the this there's this belongs in the museum. That's that's very very definitely the message of this and in this it sort of it sort of continues from the first film well we have, um, we have we have the return of the nazis which is a far easier bad guy to to take things from mm, yeah yes that's that's an interesting one though because you have this this something that we've talked about a lot in in this short series about indies his attitude to religion and science um, there is generally seen as a dichotomy in what Indy does. There are certain points where people say, well, you have to do this for its religious significance. And Indy says, well, don't care about that. I'm just doing this because archaeology or because preserving history matters, because keeping things for a museum is important. Um, mm-hmm. And you have an interesting, it's interesting sort of. I suppose there's a bit of a triple here. You've got um, those two on the one hand. You've got science and religion, but then you've got a third way, which is a very unfortunate choice of words given what I'm about to say. But you have Nazism as this this counterpoint to these two things. You have Nazism as in opposition to both religion and science and you have the religious people saying well we're going to reject Nazism because it's not Christian or it doesn't fit our religious beliefs but then you've got India rejecting Nazism on scientific grounds as well um, and of course there are there are moral judgments associated with, with religion and science as well that oppose Nazism I think that that's an interesting I think, one. I think it's important and interesting to do a differentiation here between religion and mythology. Because mm. I think they are different things and they serve different things in this film. Because the Holy Grail itself is not... Whilst it is a religious artefact, it's more of a myth- mythological artefact. It isn't canon within the Christian faith that this... This this cup gives everlasting life and all that kind of thing. That is a mythological thing around it, even though its basis is in a religious event. Hmm. If you see what I'm saying, and yeah, I think and that so that the have... film deals more deals more in mythology and myths than it does in religion. Hmm. If you see what I'm saying, yeah, and I suppose that's sort of presented right at the beginning with Professor Amy Jones because. When you first see him, we don't see a shot of Sean Connery, presumably because he would only be 13 years older than his son. It'd be quite mm. disturbing. Um, but you see him studying a manuscript, and it's made clear right at the beginning that he is an expert in medieval literature. He's an English professor. So there's that link to mythology straight away. I mean, religion is. Religious tradition is important, like you say, but one of the guiding things behind their quest is the idea of the 
the Grail Quest, the Arthurian legend, the myth behind it. Mm. I think that that this is. I think that there's an element to deal with myth here, where Indy becomes a bit of a myth himself. The Nazis know who he is. Um, And and I mean, and this is this something we will touch on more next week. Is the idea that, that myths become stop being people? They become a mythological figure, um, and whilst here Indy still remains that, I do feel you get this, this. This, I mean, a in the initial the opening scene, you have the creation myth of Indy Jones. Jones. Mm. You have the, the moment in which he, you feel he became Indiana Jones. You see the other um archaeologist who has the leather hat the jacket and the hat you see him get the whip you see him develop his fear of spite of, of snakes like this is very much a creation myth that we're witnessing of indiana jones yes. and those elements are still there to this day but i think as we touched on it previously there is still an element of humanity to him that the very first shot we see of grown up indiana jones he gets punched in the face. The iconic moment is just before the set piece where he gets chased. He's he's jumping onto his horse, and it's a it's a moment from slapstick as the horse moves out the way and he falls on the ground. So, mm. it, it, it he's he's just not the success the successful hero that, that you think he's going to be, and he succeeds in spite of that. And I think that there's, an, there's a there's a lovely little play with a filmic trope here, whereas that that whole creation myth we see in the uh, indie, like the, the 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 cut from him as a child to him as an adult, in a, a filmic language that would be the well look at him then, but look at him now kind of thing. You, know, mm. you, you, you leap forward in time to him in theory being more competent, but we don't. That is undercut straight away by the fact that he's punched in the face, and then has a very scrappy ball which he only just wins. To, re- to retrieve, admittedly, the same artifact. He doesn't come out on top, but it's not like we, we cut to him being the coolest guy in the world. You know, if you look at other films, especially like high school films, the embarrassing childhood one cuts then to him being, you know, the cool as all hell adult. Mm. And there's yeah. a nice little subversion of that, of that filmic trope and the filmic expectation. Especially as at this point, we like no one goes into film three not knowing who Indiana Jones is. You know who he is, hmm. but I think it's still not understand that he's still a bit shambolic. Hmm. You you may be surprised at the role reversal that's going on in this podcast, but as Robbers had grandiose thoughts about the meaning of the film, I'm about to talk specifics about the nuts and bolts of the film. Um, one of the thing, one of the things I really liked about this film is the use of. Um, the use of light and the use of music as well is particularly important. Um, and one of the things, one of the links to um, Temple of Doom that I saw was the the way that Indiana Jones' face lights up when he has his moment of revelation at the window in Venice. And you see mm. his face lit up red by the stained glass. And it recalls that moment in in Doom where he gets lit up by the light of the stones. I was talking about last week is the moment where you think, well, actually, he's getting a bit carried away by this. And you have um, Donlan's face at the end, spoiler alert, when his head explodes. Um, But just before that happens, you have 
his face lit up in the same way with the thought that he has chosen the right grail. So you have that nice link, not only between the beginning and end of this film, but also between this film and the one before. And music as well, I think, was particularly interesting because you have... um, The film lets you know straight away that Donovan is a bad guy. And you have this Mm. right at the beginning when his henchmen appear. And you know from their body language that they're not taking no for an answer when they're taking Indy with them. But the thing is that they appear with traditional bad guy music. And the the tone of the music when they, they appear lets you know. So the film is using using little subtle hints like that to tell you that Donovan is bad. So you you kind of know know it's coming. And you're not mm. surprised with one of the reveals towards the middle of the film. The reveal of him as, as a bad guy isn't a surprise to anybody, really. No. Um, and, and as you say, it, it, it's... It's strange because I think there's a, a, a nice. I talk about these uh, these filmic stories here, but there's a nice little double subversion there. Is that when he's picked up by these people, and you hear him meet Donovan, you initially go, "Well, oh, oh, maybe he isn't like you no. Know, clearly, he is, he's a rich person, but he isn't evil." And you, mm. know, and, you, and you so it has this element of like, "Well, I don't know anymore." Then, and so you end up sort of going, "Well, maybe he's on their side. Maybe he is." And you sort of, you start doubting your your expectation based on it. And then, like that's pulled out from you again when he's revealed to be a, to be a Nazi. Mm. Um, and I think the talking of twists, the character of Elsa, who is the um, the German assistant, turns out to be a Nazi. Um, I think there's a really lovely moment with her um, when she's kidnapped or held captive by the Nazis, and there's both the Joneses arguing over whether to free her or not. Mm. And it, I think there's some, some real credit to the actress who played her, who I will just give all now, and it's Alison Doody. Um, that she does manage to play off every version of Elsa that she has to portray very well. Um, everything through from her, you know, the wide-eyed assistant through to the, the more evil Nazi, to the regretful Nazi, to the power-mad Nazi right at the end. Uh, I think she does very, very well in a film where, the suppose, in a traditional film, the romantic subplot here is replaced by the Indiana Jones and his father subplot. Like that's mm. that's the that fills in that traditional role of what a relationship or a, or a sexual partner would do in a normal in, 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 in a more um, sort of mainstream film or in the more yes. expectation that 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 narrative divides filled there. So she does very well to to stand her own. Um, in amongst that, that's interesting because <clears throat> the relate so the relationship between Indy and his father, like you said, has occupies that position of a central love relationship because you have that that narrative of um, tentative relationship at the beginning of a film and then. Um, separation for a number of years and coming back together and it being awkward and then having a, a a moment where they come together and have a have a heart to heart over over a drink mm. and you have all the way through you have their sort of their their verbal play so you have the the thing around indie not being called indie 
that he goes through in the not being called Junior that he goes through all the way through the film and then you get the payoff right at the end so even yes. that sort of verbal play is the sort of thing you, you get from lovers and I think it, it, it's it, I always enjoy a film that can do that another example of that is Hot Fuzz in which you don't yeah. really have a love interest for either character, but the friendship with Nick Frost in that film does does fill that same role of challenging someone, helping someone grow, and all that kind of thing that normally would come with a a romantic interest is is given to somebody else. Mm. I think there are there are characters that no one else could or should play, shall we say? Mm. And the indie's one of them, and I do think that uh, Henry Jones Senior is another one. At this point, I couldn't imagine anyone else playing that father but John Connery. No. Like, no. The casting is spot on. It is, yeah. And even, I, I'm, I alluded backhand of fashion the fact there's only 13 years between them and it really doesn't matter because Harrison Ford's playing slightly younger than his age and Sean Connery's playing significantly older. It doesn't matter. Like you said, it's it. Those are the the two perfect actors for this, mm. and the two perfect actors for this relationship as well. And I think that that's. I think I think it's. Sorry, I thought again. I think it's worth also talking about the fact that this film falls in the third in a, in a trilogy. So we at a certain point have to judge this film, whilst as then its own film as we have done up until now, but also where it sits in the the larger canon of Indiana Jones films. Because I think it's notable that this, it takes the third film to explain some of the reasons why he is the way he mm. is. Yeah. Um, and also from a narrative point of view, from my point of view of how to make a good film, because I think it's rare, we'll, we'll cover this more as we go through more of the, the um, franchises, but to have a film that is this good at number three in the series is rarer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because they've brought in these new elements that don't in any way change the earlier elements. So I think that there's a temptation in later f- films for every franchise to go, well, actually, secretly, the evil guy was this. Yeah. Um, and it makes yeah. you reevaluate everything that happened in the early films. And it kind of undercuts that. Whereas I think here they're like, well, the fact that you meet his dad now doesn't change anything about the first few films. No, and discovering the backstory of how he developed his fear of, fear of snakes and how he um, developed the hat and all that kind of idea early on doesn't in any way change the thirsty films. It stands alone. So I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that it's is a successful third in a trilogy as well as being a successful film in its own right. And some some of those things, oh, you mentioned about developing his his fear of snakes. Is Spielberg did very well in the first two films, not to not to feel the need to explain that. And mm. the the reason this is Spielberg's such a cinematic genius is that that's just perfectly normal. That's human to want to explain everything and Spielberg holds back and he says well he's he's afraid of snakes he just is that's just a quirk and he mm. doesn't do the the human thing the thing that a, a modern day filmmaker I 
not going to say Michael Bay, but someone obvious like Michael Bay would do this. He'd make make sure to hammer home the point that this is why he developed the fear of snakes. And Spielberg doesn't mm. do that. He waits till the third in the series, which, as you said, is I mean, it's, a, it's a standalone film in its right, as well as a, a brilliant film to end the series. And I was I was thinking of in in terms of thinking about ways to finish off this this film series was you have those the two dangling scenes right at the end I'd call them I'm not sure how else to to describe them but with Elsa reaching for the grail and then Indy reaching the grail Elsa having dropped into the void and you have you have that they're a metaphor for the film even I mean maybe this is a metaphor for the whole series that Indy is is not a perfect hero. He is someone who has just enough humanity to be able to let something go. And mm. I've just, having having said that, I've just realised that putting Elsa and Let It Go quite close together makes you think of another film. But that's the thing about Elsa is that she just has too much passion for a single object and can't she can't bring herself to let it go. And Indeed says, you, you know what, I'm going to live to fight another day. It, it doesn't matter that much to me. But I think that there's an element here that's interesting, is that the the conscience of Indy, the humanity of Indy, is something that is external. It is his father that pulls him back from the edge. In the mm. last film, it is his short round and a Marion who pull him back from keeping all these things. So it's and while Indy is the hero, the film does go to say, well, actually, it's everyone around him who keeps him human, who keeps him grounded. Yes. Maybe then this is... Well, I've already talked about Spielberg's genius, but this is this is another thing that he is so very good at. He makes believable characters that you feel you can associate yourself with as a human because... No one is alone, and you rely on people around you for mm. important decisions, for emotional support. And what Indiana Jones is saying is that, well, everyone needs that. I'm, I'm yes. just as human as anyone else. You know, it, it, it's a once again, I keep, I keep using this word, but it's an undercutting of the hero myth of of the all star, all powerful person. But it's more about the team and the community and the family. And I think if you look at Spielberg's filmic sort of history as a whole, there is very much a, a growing and increasing over time love and indication to the family, and the idea of family love and all that kind of thing. I think it's evident here it's not a family in a blood tie sort of way, but in the idea that it takes a village to raise a person. You know, the, the the end, we have four people running off into the sunset. It's not one, it's not just Indy by himself. We have the team of four of them riding off. Hmm, yes. And that that's the abiding memory of this film. is, And that's something that Spielberg focuses on right at the end as the credits roll, is these four figures silhouetted against a sunset. The idea of people riding off together. Hmm. And even, even though... Indy has saved the day by getting the grail and even though Marcus is ridiculous and can't ride a horse properly and once got lost in his own museum 
that doesn't matter because they're all together. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's the coming together of that family. And I think it's also the the reconnection of Indy and his dad, you know, that the, the fact that at the start of the film, Indy wasn't aware that his father was working in or had been taken or even was in Venice. Yeah. So there clearly was a distance there and the, the, the creation myth at the start did some work to establish a distance between the two of them. But by the end, there's joking, there's him calling it Indiana, which clearly is a big thing for Indy himself. And sort of the reconnection of that family link, that paternal father-son bond is re-established or at least established if that's the case hmm. so what do you have in the way of recommendations this week Rob? one thing quick sidebar yes and i'm, I'm intrigued to know your, your view on this is indy now immortal he drinks from the cup i i'm interested by this and also the fact that sean connery is now immortal as well mm. although maybe it's different if you've had a fatal wound you you get powered up back to mortality. I, I don't know. Um, I'm interested about this. Also, the, the extent to which Indy believes in what he's doing. Because there's a separation here between... Um, well, as you've said, it's not really religion. It's, it's mythology. And his, his, his science, I suppose. But for him, it's not... He doesn't kneel because he believes in God. He kneels because he realises there will be a spinning blade to take his head off. And Mm. he steps when he can't see the bridge, not because he knows it's a leap of faith, but because he knows it's a trick of the light and he will stand on a bridge. So Mm. he doesn't believe these things, these not religious but quasi-mythological things. He He doesn't believe in them. He doesn't... For all everyone else says, you must believe in this, Indiana. He doesn't believe in it. So, I don't know. Because I don't think Indiana would think he was immortal. So, does that invalid... Do you, do you have to believe in the power of the grail in order to, for the power of the grail to work? I don't but know. But at the same time, he, he has seen the incredibly old um, priest who was there. Hmm. So he at this point he has evidence that there is some sort of life-giving element to this. But also... So, I mean, I don't think we're going to have an answer. But my, my thought on it was, if I can just add it for a moment, mm. that I think this is a very, very slightly cunning way of allowing Indy to keep making films. Right. So you can have an indie four, and we'll touch on this next week. You can have an indie four that isn't about keeping track of the time. You know, we could say that in the modern day, because of his, because of the uh, his sip of the cup, he isn't going to age at normal rate. And as we've said in the past, this film is a made in the eighties, set in the set in the um, in the thirties. So yeah. it's you can take indie through time now without any issues because he's got this this kind of catch or this get out of jail free mm. of uh, well I drank from the holy ale yes yeah and that's something that you see the same sort of thing 
but not achieved with such success with characters like Tom Cruise's character in Mission Impossible because there the Tom Cruise character seems to exist move through time not be affected by aging in the way that other people would and it's Mm. partly driven by the fact that Tom Cruise is the most toned 52 53 year old in existence but it's also the fact that the the filmmakers wanted to keep making films. But there's something about the films where you think, this doesn't really work. And yet with indie, like you say, you don't have to have that thought. So maybe, maybe, no. maybe you're right. Yeah. I, 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 it's, just, it's one of those things that's kind of been in the back of my mind for sort of, you know, 15 years of watching this movie. And like, Is he immortal? I don't know. So Sam... Some recommendations for further reading and further watching. My recommendations, one picks up on um, a link that I mentioned when I was talking about the mechanics of this film. And I think one of the very best things about what is an undeniably brilliant film is John Williams' music. Um, And so the John Williams link I make here is a film... um, from slightly earlier, but another Spielberg film, and I believe it was the first time he worked with Spielberg, was on Jaws in 1975. Um, it is certainly the, the first time he worked with Spielberg to critical acclaim. Um, and that acclaim comes from the fact that he made emotion real in that two-tone theme that he generated for a shark. That has passed. Everyone, everyone knows it and is scared, and that is brilliant. What John Williams has done is—it's just incredible. Two notes, and you've got a bad guy. It's amazing. It's right there. That's a bad song. Bad music. It's—it's amazing. It's just yeah, amazing. My second link for this week is. Um, someone we mentioned in passing um, who himself became an unlikely action hero later in life is Sean Connery and Mm. I would go for an adventure film I enjoyed at the time and he is in this film more of an adventurer than he is in Last Crusade when he is very definitely the non-adventurous straight guy to Harrison Ford's Daredevil action figure um, and it is 1996's The Rock. Amazing film. Amazing. I, I can't say enough good things about The Rock. It, it, that and Con Air are as close to perfect action films as, as there <laughs> exists. Your thoughts? Uh, so my recommendations, I, I've taken two. So I thought we often go down an actor route, a director route, or a thematic route. I thought, you know what? I come from a technical film background. Let's dive into some of the tech. So I grabbed hold of the editor. I grabbed hold of the uh, cinematographer. And thought, well, what, what can I pull out of their list to recommend? So, first up, editor. Edited by... I'm just pulling up the list now of uh, his name. I grabbed the film and forgot his name. So, uh, edited by Michael Kahn, who has worked with Spielberg many, many, many times over the years. But I was going to recommend the film from last year, the one in Oscar, Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies is set in the Cold War and tells the tale of a 
lawyer who deals with the handover of Russian spies in return for American airmen. It is Spielbergian. It's great. It's Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks, but it is beautifully shot. It is beautifully edited. It is a slow film, but with brief bursts of action. Um, and the way the film is paced by the editor, you re- rebuild an emotional link with every character in it, so that the payoff at the end, the bridge of spies of the title, you're so invested in it. Um, it's it won an Oscar for a reason, is all I can say. Um, so yeah, bridge of spies. The other one, the cinematographer who goes by the name of he looks the name Douglas Slocum. This was his last film, his last film he ever ever shot as a cinematographer. Um, but early in his career, he did a film that I have a lot of love for, and I think that it's um, well worth checking out. It was actually covered by my friend's podcast uh, last week. He did a film called the A to Z of S, the A to Z of SFF. So it goes through a movie or a show or a book each week and talk about it. And this week, and my recommendation to it is the 1975 film Rollable, starring James Kahn. Have you seen Rollable, Sam? No, I haven't. Rollable, uh, we will talk about the 75 version, not the terrible 90s remake. Um, it is set in a dystopian future in which corporations rule the world and the only sport is rollable, which is an ultra-violent orgy of death and motorbikes and rollerblades and spikes. And it's all about the slow realisation of the main star, James, played by James Kahn, uh, called Jonathan E., of his place in the world and how it's all controlled and all that kind of thing. It is obviously very violent as a film, but you have to look beyond that and see that the the heart and the story of this film, uh, it has stood the test of time. So yeah, Rollerball, 1975, do not see the remake. It was awful. And we've already alluded to the fact that we will be moving on in the same series next week um, to the film that I don't um, I would prefer not to acknowledge the existence of but apparently we have to complete this series so we'll be talking about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull next time oh god <laughs> the things we do for podcasts you can find us on Twitter guys come talk about these films you can find both of us at the Prestige Podcast you can find just me at life underscore academic and you can find just me at Rob Kaiju and we will see you back here for the modern classic that is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull God help us all The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries.